This Scientific American podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, your source for audiobooks and more. Audible.com features more than 100,000 titles, including science books you've been meaning to check out, like Kevin Dutton's The Wisdom of Psychopaths, What Saints, Spies, and Serial Killers Can Teach Us About Success, and Richard Panic's The 4% Universe, Dark Matter, Dark Energy, and the Race to Discover the Rest of Reality. Right now, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook and a one-month trial membership to the Scientific American audience. For details, go to audible.com slash Siam. Steve Mursky here. Welcome back for part two of my conversation with conservation biologist Kent Redford about the conference, How Will Synthetic Biology and Conservation Shape the Future of Nature? Taking place at Clare College in Cambridge, England, April 9th to the 11th. Stay tuned at the conclusion for a completely unrelated short discussion of armadillos. So much of this conversation to, so far has been about species, and, and that is the thing that attracts people a lot to this issue of de-extinction and bringing back species and what have you. But I think it's going to be, in my, if I were to guess, it would be a fairly minor part of the conversation that needs to take place between conservation and synthetic biology. Let me give you a few examples of the things that may come out of uh, synthetic biology techniques under development now. And I am not a synthetic biologist, and I do not know if these things will succeed when applied at the scale that will be necessary in the situation I'm going to describe. But just if you give me the if you just give me the right to assume that they're going to be able to scale up their techniques and it's going to be deployed at commercially significant scales. And I want to describe two or three situations that I think are ones that are critical for us in the conservation world to be thinking about. First, artem nissanin is a chemical which comes from the sweet wormwood plant, which is a small annual plant grown commercially, mostly in China and Vietnam, and from which the drug, or the, the basis for the drug uh, which is used to treat malaria, originates, artem nissanin. There is a difficulty in getting an adequate supply of these plants to be able to make the ACT drugs, which is the cocktail of artem nissanin and other things, that is proving to be the most effective malarial treatment. I just read last week that a company has opened in France to commercially produce artem nissanin from algal cells. That is, they have changed the DNA in algae to produce the, so that the algal cell produces the same drug as, as was produced, as is produced from sweet wormwood. There is the potential then to produce enough of this drug to adequately deliver, if it can be delivered to the right people, and if the malaria mosquitoes don't evolve a resistance, there is the potential, with many ifs, to address the major source of mortality and morbidity in sub-Saharan Africa. What's going to happen to land use patterns when women can control family size and girls can be educated? We have no idea. But it, ha it is the potential to be a major game change, a really major disruptive technology for many of the models that are produced for how human population growth and land use is going to, be, is going to roll out into the future. Second case uh, is palm oil. So, I'm sorry, I missed the connection between 
the uh, empowerment of women in the malarial. Sure. Research. If you no longer, so malaria is the major source of death and loss of ability to thrive. Oh, so you're um, saying if they survive. So they if, you're, the if you know your children are going to survive, and the lesson uh, from other countries gotcha. is that women have fewer children. They work to control family size because they don't have to have nine to get two to survive. Right. And it's under those circumstances that in other settings, admittedly, there has been this pattern of decreased family size and frequently associated with changing in labor patterns, movement to the city, as you've seen in many areas of Southeast Asia. So there are a lot of ifs between where we are now and where I'm saying we might go. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a person who knows whether those ifs can be carried through. But I think that we ought to be aware of this as a potential scenario. So the second one, then, if I may, is, is palm oil. So palm oil comes from the nuts of the oil palm, uh, which has been increasing tremendously in uh, the area under plantations in many very important tropical forest areas. That is, forest is being cut down so that the so that the oil palms can be planted, so that this this crop can be produced. This product. Th this is a major problem in Southeast Asia. It's it's growing as a problem in West Africa, and it's starting to become a bit of a problem in Latin America. There is the ability now, I have read, to produce an oil which is chemically superior to palm oil from, I believe it's algal cells. I'm not sure. It could be bacterial cells. So if that could be scaled up, then there is the potential to be producing palm oil or its chemical equivalent without oil pumps. And what is going to happen to the area that is currently under oil palm plantations? Now, admittedly, there's going to need to be a lot of area used to produce these, this synthetic, synthetic palm oil. And, uh, you know, I don't know how much area or where those would be. But it would presumably be a lot less area than you need to grow palm oil. One forests. would imagine, yeah. but I, I have no way mm -hmm. of, of knowing that for sure. But it may be in a different part of the world, etc. Mm -hmm. So right now there are, you know, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of hectares under oil palm plantation. What's going to happen to that land? We ought to be thinking about mm -hmm. that. We ought to be imagining a world in which that land came up for sale and could be rehabilitated for conservation lands. I don't know. But I don't want this to be yet another thing that hits us in the back of the head as we're looking out the back of the bus. And so that's what this conference in Cambridge is going to start doing, is having these two communities talk to each other and try to anticipate what some of the things that happen could be based on whatever's going to happen anyway and which could be driven by a better communication between the two parties. A better communication and an attempt on our part to instill some of our values into the lives and decisions made by synthetic biologists, to change the path that those technologies may take to make them less environmentally harmful, if not in fact environmentally beneficial. That to me, if we can start that conversation at that meeting, I'll be a happy guy. You're going to start a journal? Conservation synthetic biology? 
no, I'm, I don't want to start any journals. I just want to start conversations. And there are a lot of very talented people coming to this meeting. And part of my point is to share this passion for the conversation with many other people, particularly young people, and uh, because they are going to have to live in this world much longer than I am. And they are very much interested in these new technologies. And I am very much interested in trying to get this conversation to take place, not only amongst more senior, advanced people, but in the people who are going to be carrying these technologies and the burden of conservation forward into the next century. We've been talking with conservation biologist Kent Redford. The conference, How Will Synthetic Biology and Conservation Shape the Future of Nature, begins April 9th at Clare College in Cambridge, England. Redford is a co-author of a paper in the journal PLOS Biology that frames the issues the conference will address. It's titled Synthetic Biology and Conservation of Nature, Wicked Problems and Wicked Solutions. We'll be right back after this word from Kerry Smith at The Nature Podcast. On The Nature Podcast this week, what would happen to you if you fell into a black hole, Greenland's heat wave last summer, and how North America grabbed some islands to make its mountains. All that and more at nature.com slash nature slash podcast. So before I was recording on the record, I asked Redford to talk so I could set levels on the recorder. Here's the three-minute unexpected conversation we had about armadillos. Talk for me just a little bit. Armadillos are my favorite animals. Ooh, armadillos. You know uh, William Jacobs and Einstein? No. Oh. Is he a leprosy armadillo? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> People think all there is to armadillos is leprosy. They don't know the whole recipe side that you need to know about armadillos. Recipe? You mean cooking them? Yeah. Give me a good armadillo recipe. Well, first I'll tell you one of my most recent favorite facts. I, I went and looked up the, um, the database of airplane animal strikes. Airplane animal strikes. Yes. And there's an armadillo. And most of them are Canadian geese sure. and gulls of one sort. But if you scroll way down to the bottom, there are three records of airplane armadillo strikes. I'm just loving it. This poor armadillo is flying home, minding his own business, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes a jet. And... What was the armadillo flying a little Cessna? <laughs> no, no. These, I'm sure they were armadillos running across some right. Florida, <laughs> right. some Florida runway. But anyway, okay. Just I just a... wanted to verify these are ground-based armadillo <laughs> airplane interactions. Well, I don't know. There may be somebody <laughs> who threw one up in the air. Look, Fred, catch this one, and then it hit the Cessna as it went by. No, so it, so the recipes depend on which species of armadillo, because how many do we have in in the U.S.? Well, there's one in the U.S., but right. there are 21 species overall. Okay, and um, some of them are you have to remove scent glands and you have to soak them longer. Unlike ours, which is basically you can treat it like veal. I bet if you don't take the scent glands out, it doesn't taste so good. The one here, it doesn't matter. Okay, but in some but of the other, other ones, ones you absolutely right. have to. And in fact, you can tell in Brazil because when you're looking for roadkill armadillos, there are no roadkill armadillos of Dasypus, the, the species that's here, because if you hit one, you'll pick it up and cook it. Mm. But these other ones that you have to treat more carefully, they tend to be the ones you find on the side of the road because nobody wants to take them home and deal with them. So roadkill road armadillos are like mushrooms. you got to really know what you're doing before you eat the ones that you find. Well, they're like they're like mushrooms in the sense that if you don't know what you're doing, you probably shouldn't consume it. Right. Yeah, I see them in Florida. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Stop. 
Yep. If they're fresh, take them home. <laughs> Cumin and garlic is a very good way to cook them. Grilled, uh, broiled. Yeah, you could do them, but you know, it's basically I like treat them like chicken in the sense that you brown them in in oil hot, and then you add a little more liquid and the spices and put a top on and and basically cook them. They doesn't take very long. Do you do you mind if I use this audio, or would you prefer I don't? About the armadillos. No, it's fine. My PhD dissertation has an appendix with recipes for armadillos <laughs> and anteaters in it. So, so it's in the public record. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com where you can check out David Biello's coverage of the recent de-extinction conference. It's titled, Efforts to Resuscitate Extinct Species May Spawn a New Era of the Hybrid. And follow us on Twitter, where you get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.